Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. I have some good news. I found time to finish Rosemary's Baby and I have to say I enjoyed it quite a bit. The pacing feels a bit slower than many more modern pieces of horror, but that ending, I loved it. There are some deliberate creative choices in the book that I really enjoyed, such as marking dates in the book with historically accurate events. I also enjoyed Ira Levin's having a character be mistaken for Anna Maria Alrighetti, which gives the reader an immediate point of reference for what that character looks like. It's a terrific read by itself, and because of its place as almost like a Princess of Mars for horror. The novel's influence on so many following works is undeniable. I've linked to a list from Noelle Ransom, writing for Vice, titled The Fifty Scariest Moments in Horror. It's a wonderful list that is, for me, not only a trip down memory lane, but also has highlighted a few films that should be on my to-watch list. There were some real favorites in there. Top of my list would be Kathy Bates' hobbling scene from Misery. Jodie Foster's trip through Buffalo Bill's dark basement in Silence of the Lambs. The tall man from It Follows. And Zelda from Pet Cemetery. David Lynch makes at least four appearances on the list, including the unsettling diner scene from Mulholland Drive and the smiling man from Lost Highway. I did watch the linked clip to the movie Sleepaway Camp, which I found unsettling even though I had never even heard of the movie. So that's now on my to-watch list. Speaking of movies, and just one more movie before we get to our fiction, this past weekend I went to watch Overlord. I knew very little about the movie going into it, but I'll tell you it is a homage to classic pulp horror, if I do say so myself. It has weird science, the dead rising, and plenty of Nazis getting killed. I recommend it and watch for the scene when the leading lady has the opportunity to take out a monster with a close-range headshot 
and doesn't get stingy with that ammo. I really enjoyed that. Overlord, check it out. Let's hear some fiction, Children of the Night. Award-winning author Jeff Dosser is an ex-Tulsa cop and current software developer living in the wilds of central Oklahoma. Jeff's short stories can be found in magazines such as Iridium Zine, Tales of Terror, Shotgun Honey, Bewildering Stories, and Down in the Dirt, just to name a few. He's also been published in The Dead Man's Tome, Mother's Revenge, Hindered Souls, and Bringing It Back anthologies. His upcoming novel, Neverland, was the 2018 Oklahoma Writers Federation's winner for the Best New Horror. He is also the recipient of the 2016 Writing.com Quill Award for Best Short Fiction. When not writing, Jeff can be found wandering the woods behind his rural home, pondering the mysteries, prowling the darkness. Find out what Jeff's been up to on his website, jeffdosser.com, or follow him on Twitter, at Jeff Dosser. Links to both will be in the show notes. Children of the Night, it's time for Jeff Dosser's A Cure for Loneliness, a Tales to Terrify original. You'd think, after working here five years, she could at least afford a brush. The whispered comment, loud enough for Myrna to overhear, was met with a flurry of tittering giggles. Myrna lifted her hooded eyes from the shuffling progress of her loafers and spotted Jessica, Emily, and two other call-takers at their usual seats near the front door. Or those shoes, came the hushed reply. They're even out of style at goodwill. <laughs> Myrna reached her desk and pulled out the chair before unpacking her purse, laying out her kitten lunchbox, her thermos of iced tea, and three Hershey kisses. She didn't worry about Jessica's snide comments or the red heat she felt blaze across her cheeks on mornings like this. It was always worse on Mondays. Myrna figured the strain of their failed relationships simmered over the weekend, and they felt a need to build themselves up at her expense. She'd grown used to the other's hurtful comments. After all, hadn't she withstood the same ugly words all her life? the same Jessica's and Emily's, sitting on the steps of Washington High or in the bleachers at Scott Middle School. Myrna took out her gum and stuck it to her keyboard before slipping on her headset. It was almost ten o'clock, and the orders would be coming in soon, filling the day with activity. As the phones began to buzz, the other women drifted to their seats the hum of voices and the ring of phones a comforting background to Myrna's day. 
then a shriek, knifed through the bullpen, sending a jolt of surprise jitterbugging up Myrna's spine. Next to her, Jessica tumbled to the floor, kicking away from her desk. She screamed again, whipping off her headset and flinging into the shadows beneath her desk. What is it? Emily asked, taking a tentative step closer. It's a mouse! Jessica huffed. She pushed to her feet and grabbed a water bottle and flung it into the darkness beneath her desk. Stop, you'll hurt it, Myrna shouted. She grabbed the cup off her thermos and dropped to her knees in front of Jessica's workstation. She spotted the gleam of two tiny black eyes cowering in the corner. It's okay, baby. We'll get you out of there, she cooed. Myrna moved slowly, navigating the cup over the top of the mouse, then snapping it down over the tiny animal's head. I've got it, she called proudly. Now pass me a magazine and I'll get it out of here. From somewhere above, a magazine flopped down beside her. Myrna slid it beneath the cup, then lifted the magazine cup and mouse into the light. Instead of looks of gratitude, Myrna was surprised to find Jessica, Emily, and several other girls considering her with expressions of disgust. Why don't you just kill that thing? Jessica asked. Or flush it down the toilet, Emily added. What did it ever do to you? Myrna spat, shocked at her outrage. Then she turned and made for the exit. When she returned, she found Dan, the floor manager, standing beside Jessica's desk. He had a hand on her shoulder as she dabbed at her eyes with a tissue. So was it a mouse? Dan asked. Myrna dropped the magazine on Jessica's desk and nodded. Just a little one, she said. Poor thing was scared half to death. It's vermin, Jessica hissed. With index finger and thumb, she snatched the corner of the magazine. Then holding it out like some filth-covered rag, she stepped to Myrna's trash can and dumped it in. They're coming from that disgusting basement. Jessica turned and considered Dan. Her hands planted firmly on her hips. You should have it fumigated before someone gets bit. Later that day, as Myrna sat by herself in the lunchroom, Dan stepped in and dropped two grocery sacks and a metal rod on the table. Myrna glanced up. A peanut butter and jelly sandwich grasped in her hands. I've got a little job for you, he said. He spilled the bag's contents on the table. They were filled with mousetraps and little triangular boxes of rat poison. I want you to go down to the basement and set out all these traps and baits. Then every day remove the dead ones and reset the traps. He picked up the metal rod, running a finger down its length. And if you find any of the little buggers, smash their heads in with this. Why me? Myrna asked. Can't the janitor do it? Despite the other women's attitude, despite the sometimes condescending way Dan treated her, 
She enjoyed her job. She relished the opportunity to talk to people. She never had a chance to speak with anyone once she got home. She'd scurry up the apartment steps and lock herself in. Afraid of the shouts and occasional gunfire she'd hear in the streets outside. At work, she actually got to help people. Sure, she was only taking orders for restaurant supplies, but people she spoke with were kind. Oftentimes, they thanked her and took the time to chit chat about the most wonderful things their children or the weather in their hometown, or maybe even a little about themselves. Myrna felt like she became a small part of their lives when this happened. No, I pay the janitor to clean toilets and empty the trash, not kill mice, Dan said. Besides, it looks like you've got a knack for dealing with those little bastards. He swung open the break room door and stepped out. Once you're done with lunch, get started on that, will you? And let me know Friday how many of the little suckers you get. After lunch, Myrna made her way downstairs and flicked on the lights. The basement was a single open space separated into rows by three lines of dusty black file cabinets. Above the concrete floor, pairs of halogen lights buzzed from their thin metal chains. The room had a musty smell and a not unpleasant aroma of old papers. It reminded her of trips to the library when she was growing up. She set the metal rod atop one of the shelves and fingered the bag of traps, unsure where to start. She really didn't want to hurt the little creatures, but she didn't see she had a choice. If she didn't do as she was told, Dan would surely fire her. Myrna began at the first row, setting the traps and sliding them between the cabinets. As she worked, she read the scribbled labels on the drawers. Some labels had been typed, but most were written in faded pencil. The paper slipped into square metal brackets. Tax Statement 2001 Customer Complaints 1997 Employment Applications 1994 Further and further back they went, until on the last row a label caught her eye. Crank Letters, 1983. What could that be? Crank Letters? With a quick glance toward the stairs, Myrna undid the latch. The drawer rumbled open and locked into place with a hollow, metallic snick. Inside, she found a folder with several yellowed sheets of paper. Most were letters addressed to the nebulous, Dear Sirs, and filled with angry words towards the company. Then she flipped to a page with an old sticky note attached. A Cure for Loneliness was scrawled across the top. The edges of the note were browned and brittle. The paper it was clipped to, a simple three-hole punched sheet of notebook paper. Like the blue-lined pages she'd used so often in school. Written in red ink, the neat cursive lines read, Cure for loneliness. Follow these steps and you too can be happy. Step 1. 
Read these words aloud. Zabulon te rogamus vos mees conterum solituro. Liberatemi ex vincula desperandum. In vobismetipsis keretatum continuam crescerami. Step 2. Kiss the spot below. A crude outline of lips was drawn in the center of the page. Step 3. Believe in your happiness. Myrna glanced up, feeling suddenly foolish. Her heart raced as she read the words again. A cure for loneliness. Surely no one was more lonely than she was. She glanced down at the page, squinted at the script. She could almost imagine the faded smudge of lipstick on the poorly drawn lips. What did she have to lose? Myrna glanced over her shoulder at the stairs. She was all alone. Wasn't this like the emails promising good luck if she forwarded them? Bad luck if she didn't. She always forwarded those emails, and what harm did it do? She cleared her throat and squinted at the words. They looked a little like Spanish, but different. She read them aloud, the sounds unfamiliar and clumsy on her tongue. Zabulon terogamus vosmeus conterum solitude. There was a scratching noise to her left. She glanced up, but it was gone. Liberate me ex vincula desperandum. In vobismetipsis caritatum continuum crescere me. She lowered the paper and looked around. Well, nothing so far. She read the next line. Step two. Kiss the spot below. Myrna leaned down, placed the paper to her lips. She closed her eyes and felt warmth. She imagined kissing her boss, Dan. Only he wasn't Dan. He was Mr. Darcy of Pride and Prejudice. And she was Elizabeth Bennet. His lips were velvet soft, the tip of his tongue ever so warm. A soft moan escaped her when... What the hell are you doing? Myrna looked up to find Jessica standing at the top of the stairs. Oh my God, were you making out with that piece of paper? She laughed, the sound scornful and sharp. What a loser! She spun and marched back up the stairs, the metal door slamming shut with a hollow bang. Myrna glanced down, a fat tear landing with a tick on the final line. Step three. Believe in your happiness. When she'd finished setting all the traps and laying out the bait, Myrna clomped upstairs. She paused for a long moment, 
her hand hovering over the handle before she opened the door and stepped out. As she expected, the women glanced at her from the corner of their eyes, Jessica and Emily sharing a whispered exchange. When she took her seat and slipped on her headset, someone made an exaggerated smooching noise. The floor erupted in laughter. Dan poked his head out of his office and looked around. Come on, people, less horseplay, more work. His eyes alighted on Myrna. You get all those traps set? Yes, sir. He gave her a thumbs up and disappeared inside his office. The rest of the afternoon, Myrna couldn't get her mind off the kiss. It seemed so real. She could almost smell Dan's cologne, could taste the slight bite of cigarettes on his breath. When it came time to leave, Myrna excused herself and hid in the bathroom. She wanted just one more kiss, wanted to see if it was all in her imagination or maybe, maybe something more. She waited some time before creeping out of the bathroom. Myrna found the office dark. The only illumination, a bright rectangle of light streaming from Dan's office and casting the bullpen in a dim yellow glow. Quietly, she crept across the hall and eased open the basement door. Myrna hadn't remembered leaving the lights on, but she guessed she had. She slid down the stairs and around the corner, halting in surprise at the sight before her. Lying on a thick pallet of blankets was Dan, his shirt and pants folded in a pile next to him. Straddling his hips and wearing nothing but pink lace panties was Jessica. Both started and glared when Myrna rounded the corner. What the fuck are you doing here? Jessica sneered. She pushed off Dan, her eyes darting about the room. They landed on the metal rod Myrna had left behind earlier. Jessica scooped it up, an evil grin tugging at the corners of her lips. You were spying on me, weren't you? Jessica took a step forward, slapping the pipe into her palm. You nosy little bitch. You think you're going to tell my husband about this, don't you? Myrna stumbled back, the shadows on the floor seeming to sway and flow around her. No, no, I didn't even know you were down here. Her eyes darted from Jessica to Dan. Please, I won't tell anyone. No one has to know. You're damn right no one will know, Jessica hissed. Because I'm going to give you a little sample of what will happen if you talk. Myrna stumbled back, her arm raised against the blow. Jessica's eyes, pinched in an expression of rage, flew suddenly wide with surprise. Glancing down, she screamed. Shadows swirled around her naked feet, flowed up her thighs, her hips. Myrna gasped in horror at the realization that the dark shapes she mistook for shadow were, in fact, hundreds of tiny bodies. The tiny, furry bodies 
of mice. Jessica stumbled sideways, sending a cabinet crashing to the floor. She batted at the swarm as it engulfed her breasts, crawled in a living shroud across her face, her arms choking off her cries. In moments, she tumbled to her knees in a convulsing mass, then to the floor, her legs kicking feebly for several moments, before going still. The flowing horde pulsed and bulged, growing smaller and smaller until the last few animals scurried into shadow. The only thing left behind were four small bodies and a pair of tattered pink panties. What the fuck? What the fuck? Dan sprang to his feet, not bothering to cover his nakedness. Once again, the shadows flowed across the ground toward them. As Dan dashed for the stairs, Myrna covered her eyes and dropped to her knees. She tried to shut out the screams. Dan's muffled cries and the whispering sounds of scurrying feet in the silence that followed. I'm next, she thought. I'm going to be eaten alive. Don't be afraid, someone said. Myrna dropped her hands from her eyes, searched for the source of the voice. The shadow of swarming mice swirled across the floor and entered Dan's empty clothes. The pants and shirt filled like a Macy's Day balloon, rising slowly from the floor. From the shirt's neck, a brown glob formed, taking the shape of a head, tiny bodies and whipping tails smoothing to form nose, eyes, lips. We're here for you, Myrna, the voice said. I'm here for you. The thing took a halting step forward, held out its arms. All you have to do is believe. Believe in your happiness. Myrna squinched her eyes closed. Her heart hammered in her ears. Soft hands cupped her cheeks the warm exhale of a thousand mouths on her lips. She cracked open her eyes. For a moment, the face before her quivered in a mass of shiny black eyes and squirming bodies. I deserve to be happy, she repeated. I have a right to be happy. She realized suddenly she was gazing into Dan's deep brown eyes. As long as you believe, we'll be happy, he said. He leaned in and kissed her neck, his lips like a dozen tiny tongues probing her flesh. He pulled back and smiled. Can you do that, my love? Can you believe? For you, Myrna sighed. Anything.
That was Jeff Dosser's A Cure for Loneliness, as read by Josie Babin. Josie has a deep love for all things terror. That is why she chose an abandoned foreclosure as her first home purchase. When not hanging drywall or convincing herself that the noise she heard was just the house settling, she can be found in a lab convincing stem cells to cure diseases. In-between times are filled with playing outside in the San Diego sun, imposing snuggles on her two cats and sometimes even her human companion. Narrating stories is a special treat that she enjoys immensely and she hopes you enjoy listening to them. Thank you as always, Josie. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Now, the second story for our evening is a classic from a very accomplished American author. Elia Wilkinson was the daughter of Frederick and Amanda Wilkinson. She was born on January 15, 1862 in Kalamazoo, Michigan, but moved with her family to Chicago when she was young. She stopped attending school when she was 14, but kept up a reading habit. In 1883, she married Robert Burns Peaty, a Chicago journalist. She began writing short stories for newspapers and in 1886 became a reporter with the Chicago Tribune and subsequently the Chicago Daily News. In 1888, the family moved to Omaha after P.T. and her husband accepted jobs at the Omaha Daily Herald. When Gilbert Hitchcock bought the Daily Herald and combined it into the Omaha World Herald, P.T. became chief editorial writer for the paper. 
P.T. wrote over 800 columns, editorials, and stories in the World Herald, offering a voice to frontier women. P.T. did not limit her articles to societal pieces and was active in political discourse. A supporter of orphanages, charity hospitals, and the need for shelters, she also took a hard line and was outspoken in her opposition of capital punishment, lynching, and the Wounded Knee Massacre. She wrote for magazines including Century, Lippincott's Magazine, Cosmopolitan Magazine, St. Nicholas, Wide Awake, The American Magazine, America, Harper's Weekly, and San Francisco Argonaut. In these stories, P.T. presented hope and refused to bend to modernism and his disillusioned outlook on life. In 1888, she was commissioned by Chicago publishers to write a young people's history of the United States and wrote the 700-page The Story of America in Four Months. Her novel, The Judge, won a $900 prize from the Detroit Free Press in 1889 and was subsequently published in book form. Later in 1889, the Northern Pacific Railroad employed her to visit and report on Alaska. A Trip Through Wonderland became a popular guidebook. With Scrip and Staff, 1891, was a story of the Children's Crusade. Sometime later, 1890, P.T. befriended fellow writer Kate McPhillum Cleary while both were living in Nebraska. The two bonded over their financial, health, and family concerns. P.T. subsequently returned to Chicago and became literary editor of the Chicago Tribune. Listen with me, children of the night, to Eliah W. P.T.'s The Room of Evil Thought. called it the room of the evil thought. It was really the pleasantest room in the house, and when the place had been used as the rectory was the minister's study. It looked out on a mournful clump of larches, such as may often be seen in the old-fashioned yards in Michigan, and these threw a tender gloom over the apartment. There was a wide fireplace in the room, and it had been the young minister's habit to sit there hours and hours, staring ahead of him at the fire and smoking moodily. The replenishing of the fire and of his pipe, it was said, would afford him occupation all the day long, and that was how it came about that his parochial duties were neglected so that Little by little, the people became dissatisfied with him, though he was an eloquent young man who could send his congregation away drunk on his influence. However, the calmer pulsed among his parish began to whisper that it was indeed the influence of the young minister, and not that of the Holy Ghost, which they felt and it was finally decided that neither animal magnetism 
nor hypnotism were good substitutes for religion, and so they let him go. The new rector moved into a smart brick house on the other side of the church and gave receptions and dinner parties and was punctilious about making his calls. The people, therefore, liked him very much, so much that they raised the debt on the church and bought a chime of bells in their enthusiasm. Everyone was lighter of heart than under the ministration of the previous rector. A burden appeared to be lifted from the community. But then the former rector had made them uncomfortable. He had not only made them conscious of the sins of which they were already guilty, but also of those for which they had the latent capacity. A strange and fatal man whom women loved to their sorrow and whom simple men could not understand. It was generally agreed that the parish was well rid of him. He was a genius, said the people in commiseration. The word was an uncomplimentary epithet with them. When the Hanscoms moved in the house which had been the old rectory, they gave Grandma Hanscom the room with the fireplace. Grandma was well pleased. The roaring fire warmed her heart as well as her chill old body, and she wept with weak joy when she looked at the larches because they reminded her of the house she had lived in when she was first married. All the forenoon of the first day she was busy putting things away in bureau drawers and closets, but by afternoon she was ready to sit down in her high-backed rocker and enjoy the comforts of her room. She nodded a bit before the fire, as she usually did after luncheon, and then she awoke with an awful start and sat staring before her with such a look in her gentle, filmy old eyes as had never been there before. She did not move except to rock slightly, and the thought grew and grew till her face was disguised as by some hideous mask of tragedy. By and by, the children came pounding at the door. Oh, Grandma, let us in, please. We want to see your new room, and Mama gave us some ginger cookies on a plate, and we want to give some to you. The door gave way under their assaults, and the three little ones stood peeping in, waiting for permission to enter. But it did not seem to be their grandma, their own dear grandma, who arose and tottered towards them in fierce haste, crying, Away! Away! Out of my sight! Out of my sight before I do the thing I want to do. Such a terrible thing. Send someone to me quick, children. Children, send someone quick. They fled with feet shod with fear, and their mother came, and Grandma Hanscom sank down and clung about her skirts and sobbed. Tie me, Miranda. Make me fast to the bed or the wall. 
get someone to watch me, for I want to do an awful thing. The next morning, someone suggested taking her in the sitting room where she would be with the family. So they laid her on the sofa, hemmed around with cushions, and before long she was her quiet self again, though exhausted naturally with the tumult of the previous night. Now and then, as the children played about her, a shadow crept over her face, a shadow as of cold remembrance, and then the perplexed tears followed. When she seemed as well as ever, they put her back in her room, but though the fire glowed and the lamp burned, as soon as ever she was alone, they heard her shrill cries ringing to them that the evil thought had come again. So Hal, who was home from college, carried her up to his room, which she seemed to like very well. Then he went down to have a smoke before Grandma's fire. The next morning, he was absent from breakfast. They thought he might have gone for an early walk and waited for him a few minutes. Then his sister went to the room that looked upon the larches and found him dressed and pacing the floor with a face set and stern. He had not been in bed at all, as she saw at once. His eyes were bloodshot, his face stricken, as if with old age or sin, or but she could not make it out. When he saw her, he sank in a chair and covered his face with his hands, and between the trembling fingers she could see drops of perspiration on his forehead. How? she cried. How? What is it? But for answer he threw his arms about the little table and clung to it, and looked at her with tortured eyes, in which she fancied she saw a gleam of hate. She ran screaming from the room, and her father came and went up to him and laid his hands on the boy's shoulders, and then a fearful thing happened. All the family saw it. There could be no mistake. Hal's hands found their way with frantic eagerness toward his father's throat, as if they would choke him, and the look in his eyes was so like a madman's that his father raised his fist and felled him as he used to fell men years before in the college fights, and then dragged him into the sitting room and wept over him. By evening, however, Hal was all right, and the family said it must have been a fever, perhaps from overstudy, at which Hal covertly smiled. But his father was still too anxious about him to let him out of his sight, so he put him on a cot in his room, and thus it chanced that the mother and Grace concluded to sleep together downstairs.
The two women made a sort of festival of it and drank little cups of chocolate before the fire and undid and brushed their brown braids and smiled at each other understandingly with that sweet intuitive sympathy which women have and Grace told her mother a number of things which she had been waiting for just such an auspicious occasion to confide. But the larches were noisy and cried out with wild voices, and the flame of the fire grew blue and swirled about in the draft sinuously, so that a chill crept upon the two. Something cold appeared to envelop them, such a chill as pleasure voyagers feel when a berg steals beyond Newfoundland and glows blue and threatening upon their ocean path. Then came something else which was not cold but hot as the flames of hell, and they saw red and stared at each other with maddened eyes and then ran together from the room and clasped in close embrace safe beyond the fatal place and thanked God they had not done the thing that they dared not speak of, the thing which suddenly came to them to do. So they called it the room of the evil thought they could not account for it. They avoided the thought of it, being healthy and happy folk. But none entered it more. The door was locked. One day, Hal, reading the paper, came across a paragraph concerning the young minister who had once lived there and who had thought and written there and so influenced the lives of those about him that they remembered him even while they disapproved. He cut a man's throat on board a ship for Australia, said he, and then he cut his own without fatal effect and jumped overboard. And so ended it. What a strange thing. Then they all looked at one another with subtle looks, and the shadow fell upon them and stayed the blood at their hearts. The next week, the room of the evil thought was pulled down to make way for a pansy bed, which is quite gay and innocent and blooms all the better because the larches, with their eternal murmuring, have been laid low and carted away to the sawmill. That was Elia W. P.T.'s The Room of Evil Thought, as read by Anna Simmons. Anna Simmons lives in Brooklyn with her partner and two cats and writes science fiction. Thank you, Anna. That will be our show for the evening, children of the night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on Apple Podcasts. Our show was produced by our editors Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and Drew Sebastini. Website designed by Josh Lightsey and theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 
4.0 license. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.